0: Welcome to the Mindfulness Academy podcast. I'm your host, Amy Morgan, and today we have on our show the one and the only Fleet Mall. Fleet, thanks so much for being on this show.
1: Oh, my pleasure, thank you for having me, Amy.
0: Well, I'm going to start by introducing you, and I have been playing you up, talking you up to loads of folks because I have been so excited for you to be on the show today. So without further ado, Fleetmall PhD is an author, meditation teacher, and entrepreneur who developed Neurosomatic Mindfulness, also known as NSM, a deeply embodied neuroscience and trauma-informed approach to meditation, offering an accelerated path to healing, awakening, and integration. He is both a Zen Roshi and a senior teacher in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He founded Heart Mind Institute, an education platform for embodiment and resilience training courses and summits. He also founded Prison Mindfulness Institute, Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, and National Prison Hospice Association, catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14-year sentence from 1985 to 1999. Dr. Mall is the author of Radical Responsibility, How to Move Beyond Blame, fearlessly live your highest purpose and become an unstoppable force for good. Quite the resume and you have given so much. So we will hop in and talk a little bit about um, who you are, how we met, what the connection is for you being here on the show. And I think the first time we actually met, although I'd heard about you plenty before from the beloved Robert Ola Miller here in Indianapolis, um, we met, was it a Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety. Was it a training call, something along those lines?
1: Right, mm mm-hmm. yeah, it's a weekly call All we do for public safety professionals in Indiana.
0: It's a, it's a beautiful service, um, and I encourage anyone listening. Um, if you are in um, frontline sort of work, um, particularly with public safety, please look into that. See if you um, might if that might be a good fit for you to hop on those calls. I think they're Wednesday evenings typically. Um,
1: it's quite. Uh, I think. Oh, I don't get me I think they're. I think they're at eight o'clock.
0: Yeah, they're they're really really lovely. Um, so I am wondering if you would tell us a little bit about yourself, and I would love for you to take us back just a little before what i I think is more of a public um knowledge about who you are, but take us back just a little bit farther into where you grew up where were you originally from, plate
1: mm-hmm. I grew up in the midwest, um grew up in St Louis, actually, and um a middle class Roman Catholic family, um, a good family, a family that had a small business, um, you know. Growing up, I, I don't know if people are old enough to remember shows like. Uh, you'd have to be as old as I am, but if you, you remember old sitcom shows like Leave It to Beaver, Father's Knows Best, you know that kind of working class suburban kind of, you know that that was kind of the John world I grew up in a little bit, um, and uh, uh, you know, good family, good values, but we did have alcoholism in our family. And uh, my beloved mother suffered from alcoholism and it was kind of kind of kind of an episodic thing. Like so uh, most of the time she was this wonderful human being, wonderful mother. She was an incredible artist, but sometimes once a week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, you almost always at least once a week, uh, she would start drinking and just become a different person. It was really a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And you know, you'd get home from school, you could tell mom had been drinking and and she'd become this really scary rageholic and by the time dinner happened, it would just be chaos and, and, you know, fighting and screaming. And, you know, my father didn't really know how to handle it. And and then, uh, you know, eventually she'd pass out. And then you'd come down to breakfast in the morning, there'd be mom smiling, making breakfast, and nobody would ever talk about it like it ever happened. So you can imagine the kind of psychic splitting that creates for people. And, and also, my brother was quite a bit old. I was the second in the family, but my brother was almost six years older. And so he was off to school. Uh, at some and, um uh, And this didn't surface right away in my life. I, it surfaced, you know, I, I don't know when it surfaced exactly, but around the time I started going to school or something. But at any rate, um, at some point, sometimes if my father was, you know, away on business or out at a business appointment or something, and my brother wasn't there, which he was mostly gone by this time, you know, she, uh, she would come after me, right? Um, and... Uh, Actually, when I was about twelve, I think I uh, somewhere around that age, I uh, maybe ten and 12, One time, I walked into a room and I threatened her. I said, "You ever touch me again, I'm going to kill you." And I felt really bad about doing that, but you know, I did it, and uh, so she never she never touched me again. And. um but it you know it's just that that creates so I you know I, I don't talk about this to to belittle my mother in any way. she was a wonderful human being, and she got her suffering for growing up in a as a very intelligent artistic woman in a in a culture that really was very oppressive for women um and um so forth so um uh, but anyway, for me, it resulted in me arriving in adolescence with a big hole in my gut. You know, and I graduated from high school in 1968, which was a very tumultuous year in in U.S. history, with the with the all the assassinations, the Kent State killings. Uh, uh, there'd been, you know, um, uh, what then were called race riots. Uh, today, maybe after Black Lives Matter, they'd be called uh, I can't remember what the term. They'd be not rebellion, but another term. It's like protest or something. But anyway, the, the cities were burning. Um and in where well, I grew up in St. Louis, it was been happening every summer since sixty five, sixty-five, sixty six, sixty-seven. And a very tumultuous year, year in sixty eight, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated and uh, Robert Kennedy was assassinated and just a very divisive tumultuous time in US history. And um and so yeah, I was angry, alienated, and uh, you know, and then I, I just went headlong into the counterculture of that time. Um as an angry young man with a big hole in my gut, and you know, wanting to fill that with anything I could to ease the pain, right? So that took me right into a lot of, you know, substance abuse and addiction, and and um, so. But I'd always been a spiritual seeker at the same time, and uh, I had, you know, remembered my early childhood, uh, which was perhaps before the alcoholism showed up. I don't know. Remembered my early childhood as um, being quite magical and feeling things were vivid and, you know, I felt really plugged into reality and, you know, and at some point that just went away and it was like gray tones and I never made peace with that. So I was always looking for that. And of course, you know, I, I was thinking I was plugging back in, you know, with the drug sex, and rock and roll, and to an extent there was something there, but, you know, it's somewhat real, somewhat mirage-like. And if you have a big hole and you've got a propensity to addiction, it's got a lot of baggage that comes with it, right? So. Uh, at any rate, you know, I was I was just looking, and but I I started exploring uh, Eastern religions very early on. Uh, I figured I was by the time I was in high school. My sophomore year of high school was when I. I first smoked pot. I first took LSD, and I figured I was a Zen Buddhist. I figured all that out when I was 16 at Southborn High School. It
0: was a big year uh, for And you. It, it
1: kind of progressed from there. But growing up in Missouri, <laughs> there weren't a lot of other people interested in Eastern philosophies and religions or in that area. It wasn't like growing up in California or something. And so, you know, it, it took me a, a while to find my way. Eventually, I left the country. Um, um, I, I was just fed went. up. Uh, about 1972, Um, when, um, uh, when Richard Nixon was reelected, I, I just kind of had enough and I just couldn't, uh, I was just so alienated. And so it was one thing I wanted to leave the U S but I also was still looking for something real. And I had gotten this notion that somehow I would find it in Peru. I don't know where I even had that image and it wasn't about any, anything to do with drugs or anything to do with that. It was just something. And, um, so anyway, I took off traveling and back as a back, hippie backpacker, you know, and and uh, and uh, all the way down through Mexico. I ended up getting an, a, a local sailing boat, living on a sailboat for a year off in the Caribbean, off the coast of Belize, and then sold that, continued on down, and finally did make my way to Peru. And I really did discover, you know, uh, it was a very incredibly magical place. It was, um, you know, just environmentally, it was incredibly powerful and magical. And, you know, there was still, drugs were still part of the journey, but they are more in the background. It was really interested in you know the indigenous cultures and in the archaeology and and uh, um but i did eventually fall into small time um drug smuggling as a way to continue to live outside the culture uh you know i, I had some connections down there i would meet people coming down that you know and then you know i'd make a little money initially i'd you know i'd like make a thousand dollars i could live off that for six months down there i was living you know a dollar a day kind of lifestyle down there you know and, um, uh, but eventually it, it grew into something more than that. And, and uh, um, but I still, it wasn't like I was trying to get rich. It was just a way to continue to live outside the mainstream of society. And I justified it with all this us versus them thinking and being like, you know, society was completely hypocritical and all that. And, um, but eventually I heard about the founding of of then uh, Naropa Institute, later Naropa University by a Tibetan meditation master named Chugam Trungpa Rinpoche in 1974 i i i was living way up in a very remote part of the andes mountains in peru when some travelers brought a copy of rolling stone magazine it had a big feature story about the first summer session there at naropa and i just zeroed in on that i I gotta go there and i actually already zeroed in on the tibetan buddhist tradition that's what i was studying there had only been four or five books published i mean there's this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds now but back then there only been four or five books published and i had them with me there in peru and some other things and i was trying to learn to meditate on my own and you know and i knew that was kind of my lineage you know i connected with it just felt this heart connection to it so i read about him and i knew knew i had to get there so eventually i did enroll in Europa, and i uh, i did a very intensive three-year clinical training program in buddhist and western psychology and psychotherapy very powerful program and in the process became his student and and uh, got deeply into that path but I still had this shadow life going on that I kept secret from from him and everyone else where I disappear once or twice a year to South America and do a smuggling run and and uh, so I had to split life of was spending about half the year in serious pursuit of Buddhism and practice and you know, retreats and traveling with him and really you know sincerely involved but then another part of the year involved in this craziness right and a crazy lifestyle and I knew that I had to come to an end. I was self-medicating around the cognitive dissonance around it. Um, but before I could, I did eventually stop, but but other people I've been involved with continued and got in trouble and decided to invite me along. And so I was eventually indicted in 1985 and decided to turn myself in on my teacher's advice, decided to turn myself in. And so I ended up going to prison for 14 years. But at that point, I'd already been you know, I had a lot of training under my belt. I had a master's degree in basically clinical psychology, clinical psychotherapy, and and uh, I've been training as a Buddhist and been and trained to teach already uh, for ten years. Um, so I came into prison with a lot of skills and a lot of background. So it's kind of a a a, a mixed bag of a of a, of a life journey.
0: Yeah, I have been. Um, thank you for sharing that. What. A journey it has been. Um, I have been listening to uh, your book on on um, Audible, and I was really moved by the moment where you talk about standing up on the toilet seat or or the bathroom or, or your bathroom sink, whatever it was, and looking out into the night sky and having that, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, but having that moment where you decided, I'm not going to give up no matter what my sentence will be. I'm not going to give up. And um, that it was really about uh, kind of an internal uh, locus of control, perhaps, and, and also wanting to give your, your son uh, something. Uh, someone to look up to and that, that he would be proud of what you'd become. And, um, it was very powerful in that visual of just trying to seek something, um, beautiful, uh, amidst where you were. Um, tell me about that, that situation of trying to become something really amazing for your son. What, how was that kind of a catalyst for you being mindful of the fact that this was a difficult situation for your wife and your son and how you how you not only tethered to it, but really stayed tethered to it? Is that the case? I, I assume that was the case. You stayed tethered to it. It was kind of maybe a sense of North Star, perhaps.
1: And it wasn't so much that I was trying to become amazing. I was just trying to leave myself on a better legacy than just his dad went to prison, right? Or even his dad sure. died in prison because I had no surety that I'd survive my time. Um, yeah, it was a seminal moment that I'm grateful for. I Just something just came over me and I just had this absolute clarity that you know, I was facing a potential life sentence the next day. Right. Uh, and it, a no parole sentence. Whatever I got, was that was it. And I was facing um, anywhere from... Uh,
0: thirty five at the time, right? You were thirty five at the time, right? Thirty
1: five, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I, I, the next, you know, so I was facing that sentencing the next day, and and I just absolutely clear no matter what happened, I was not going to give up on myself, my life, my son, um, my practice, and so forth. And um, the uh, the next day I was sentenced to thirty years with no parole. And the paper the next morning said I'd be sixty five before I had any chance of release. So I pretty much thought my life as I'd known it was over and I'd really kind of torched my life. And, and, uh, but more than anything else, what hit me and what I'd done to my son who was not going to grow up without a dad. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I, over, I went to a real kind of dark night of the soul around that. Um, you know, and I was still in this hellhole of a County jail, you know, but eventually I got transferred to the federal prison where, where I did my time. Um, and when I got there, um, uh, you know, I was pretty caught up in the drama of my own situation, as you can imagine. I've just been sentenced to 30 years, no parole. And, you know, what I've done to my family, my son, my, myself, and and imagining being in prison for all this time and a lot of fear around that. And um, so I get to this prison and um, I, I did my... Uh, I, I, they moved me around a few different prisons and transfer, but eventually I got there. And I, and where I did my time was the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, which is in Springfield, Missouri, and it's the maximum security federal prison hospital for the federal. There are other federal prison hospitals, but this is the highest security one. So all the patients there come from the federal penitentiaries, the high security penitentiaries like Lewisburg and Lompoc and Atlanta and others. Um, and so... Uh, uh, I get there and and I'm. It's it's a big complex. They have like ten buildings and they're all connected with these tunnels that are half underground, half above ground. So there's a little light you can get. There's some light that comes in from the part that's above ground, but you can move around the whole complex, all the building, without ever having to go outside. And uh, there's a lot of gates. There's controlled movements. You can only move on the hour and so forth. But I got there and I'm just walking down. The, I'll never forget that first time. I'm you you. There's a Place where they bring in prisoners and where they eventually release prisoners as well. So I, I went through the whole process of being brought in and all the, the shaming exercises that are part of that, and um, by intention or not, but it but it is a very shaming process. And you know now I'm in my prison clothes and I'm walking down the hall and um, one of these tunnels, and and I'm seeing uh, men who are blind being. Uh, with a white cane, uh, you know, on their own or assisted along, you know, the hall. I'm seeing men being wheeled in wheelchairs who are incredibly emaciated from AIDS and cancer. I'm seeing men who are quadriplegic and paraplegic in wheelchairs. I'm seeing men coming out of the the, the psychiatric ward doing the the all or thorazine two step or, you know, I mean, it was like a Fellini movie of suffering, and and it just shocked me. And I'm actually very grateful for that because it shocked me out of the preoccupation with my own situation. And I realized I was in this world of tremendous suffering. And so just thankfully, what then kicked in was the aspiration to serve, to just show up and serve. And that was based on really the influence of my spiritual teacher, who was someone who I was very close to and had watched very closely for years. And as i could tell he never had any other motivation in life than serving humanity and he did that 24 7. and um and you know despite the problems of my family i had a good basic you know a good family with good values and service oriented community oriented and and um so I, well, i'm here in this hell realm and you know I've i've got some training so how can i serve right and i got a job teaching school that was my day job for 14 years teaching school Helping other prisoners uh, learn to read, or get their GED, or study correspondence college courses, and uh, uh, but the main thing was it it shifted me from that self preoccupation with my own situation to realizing, you know, I didn't quite conceptualize it that I was there for a reason, but and but but nonetheless, it was just you know, okay, here I am, let's serve, and um, so. You know, as a as a result of that, um I got very involved in in relating with the various communities in the prison, got involved with a service organization that was going up into the medical units, uh, providing uh, support, showing the, the prison movies to patients that couldn't go down to the gym to see them, things like that. I started a meditation group in the chapel, uh, which they didn't particularly want me to do, but by right. hook or crook eventually got that going. and and so I was running that, uh, leading that twice a week. I got very involved in twelve step work and was very, I was a, really kind of a backbone in service work of that program for those fourteen years, um, and the twelve step programming. And uh, and then um, I got very concerned about the plight of the. They were they were starting to bring all the AIDS patients there from all the federal penitentiaries, and there was a lot of fear uh, amongst the the prisoner population there because there'd been no education around AIDS. They Well, they're bringing them all here to see if we get AIDS, right? And there was a lot of fear. And so the prison was putting the AIDS patients back in a psych ward in a locked unit uh, for their own protection. And so I was taking the movie projector back there and I was getting to know them a little bit. I got very concerned about their plight. And I started reaching out to outside organizations and the the growing AIDS movement, you know, and uh, seeing how I could help. And and I and through that I ended up getting in touch with uh, uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross to develop a long term friendship with her and Stephen Andrea Levine and others, and um, but then eventually I I brought it up to a chaplain. I said, Do you think we could get a hospice program going here? And I wasn't even really that clear what a hospice was, but I had some idea, and um, and he said, Well, you should talk to the 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 uh, medical surgical psychologist, and he's been talking to somebody else interested in that, and so. Anyway, there was another prisoner that had similar ideas. He was thinking more of a, uh, of, it was kind of a, a little more religiously focused. He was a uh, um, volunteer program, but anyway, we got together. We ended up trying to, you know, put together a hospice program, and so we did. And it took quite, it took a while. We had to put quite a few proposals in. They kept getting turned down by this one associate warden, but then he got transferred out, and they brought another associate warden in that was over programs and religious services and things. And that one had recently had an experience with hospice with his own family and was really, you know, most people who've been through a hospice experience realize how amazing it is and how amazing the people that work in a hospice are. And so he said, well, let's give this a try. And so we we recruited people from the outside community, from local hospitals and hospice programs and so forth, to come in and train a group of 10 prisoners, the two of us and eight other prisoners we recruited. And then um, we started seeing our first patients um, and we started training in 87, started being our first patient in 1988. So this was, as far as we know, the first hospice inside a prison anywhere in the world. And, uh, and that became a big part of my life for the rest of my time. Uh, I usually had two, sometimes three patients, three was a lot because I was, you know, I was up all my meal breaks. I was up there in the hospital, helping them, you know, eat, eat, help, you know, bathing them, doing, helping them communicate with their family, taking them to religious service, taking them out to the yard. So that was a huge part of my life. And and these became very, very, they more like surrogate family relationships, you know. Prisoners have this kind of radar around being able to trust each other. When I mean, you'd meet a new, you know, hospice um, patient and, you know, they kind of check you out. And as soon as they figured they could trust, they just bring you in and make you their, you know, you know like maybe they were older or younger or same age or whatever the relationship was but you became like a family member and they're very close relationships you spent a lot of time together and and it was very powerful work you're confronted with your own mortality because there you know but for the grace of whatever you believe in, go you and and in fact some of my patients were younger than I was and I had never been tested for age yet and I'd been an IV drug user I easily could have had AIDS um and as also um we had two hospice volunteers, healthy hospice volunteers, uh, who, while there, got sick, became hospice patients and died there. One of them was a very close friend of mine, and the other one, actually, I became his hospice volunteer. So, you know, we you're really confronted with your own mortality and this act of service of, of you know, have, being in a city where somebody else's needs are so compelling. And, you know, somebody who's terminally ill and dying in a situation, they have almost no access to their family. Um, even most of their friends are probably back at the penitentiary where they came from. They're isolated up in these locked medical wards. I mean, they're and you know, they have all, no choices about medical care. The food isn't great. And often the, the, the even the, some of the prisoner nursing attendants get jobs in the hospital just to steal. So they steal the best food and they steal people's stuff. And, you know, so it's a very rough situation. And so you're there with a person and, you know, it's just so obvious their needs are paramount, right? So you have, you learn to set your own needs aside, at least temporarily. You 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 put your focus on someone else's needs rather than your own. And that's an incredibly not not in a self-sacrificing way, but just, you know, in a, in a moment, okay, this is about this person. And I'm here to to support this person. That's an incredibly transformative thing. And and that hospice service was an incredibly transformative part of my life there all those years. Um but, you know, really, why, and I ended up being able to do research on it and publishing research and then started a national organization to get that model out in the world. And that's the National Prison Hospice Association. And as a result of that, there's probably about 80 uh, state and federal prison hospice programs in this country now and a few internationally as well. And um, so that was, you know, a big part of my life there. And also I was living this really incredibly disciplined life. But the minute I got to that prison, I realized if I'm going to be able to do anything good here, it's going to come out of my practice. right? It's not going to come out of talking about thinking about it. It's going to come out of my practice. So I would literally practicing like my my hair was on fire, you know, practicing hours every day, much longer on weekends, uh, living in big dorms to begin with and sitting out, staying on the top bunk. So I had head clearance to meditate. And then later I started using these trash closets and taking everything out of them and going there and sit. And eventually I was able to get a single cell, but you know, that was the foundation of my life. I spent two or three hours a day practicing two or three hours a day studying as well as being involved in all this service work and having a regular day job. So I, le- I didn't sleep very much. The first probably seven, eight years, I slept four or five hours a night. I seemed to be able to get away with that. Um, and um uh, yeah, I was just driven. I was I was on fire to to practice and serve and get all the negativity out of my life, and so it became a very transformative time of my life. And in the context of living in this incredibly negative environment, you know, on a good day in prison, you maybe only have a half dozen incredibly demeaning encounters uh, with your fellow prisoners or with the staff. Right? That's on a good day. Right? It's just a very negative environment, potentially very violent environment, and uh, you know, so your 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 humanity and your your sense of self worth, your sense of your own personhood, is just under assault all the time. And I was fortunate that I came in there with a strong practice and a lot of resilience, right? Because most people come out of prison much worse than they go in. Uh, for me, it became a very transformational journey, and I'm very grateful for that. But I, you know, a lot of times when I'm being interviewed and things, people say, well, it seemed you know, it seemed like it in some ways it was very good. For you and part of your journey. I said, yes. And for most people, it's not. For most people, it's very destructive. And and our prison system needs a lot of work to say the least. And I've dedicated my life to that.
0: So tell me more about dedicating your life to this. So we, we've talked quite a bit about the hospice program, which I appreciate you sharing about that. What a beautiful service um, to folks who probably don't have the support that they need. And, and probably just don't even have access to it, even if they, if they did have folks who would who would come around them. So what a beautiful service that is, and that it's caught like wildfire uh, around our nation. Um, what else have you done in the prison institutes? You you you've done um, practices with other inmates. Um, you've you've helped also train uh, some of the wardens. Is that that's also part of what your practice? Yeah. Well, has been too. I, you
1: know, I led that group for. 14 years there, twice a week, teaching meditation to whoever showed up. Okay. Um, but at some point, I started publishing um, in various journals um, um, in the kind of contemplative world, things like Yoga Journal and tri Magazine, Shambhala Sun Magazine, Lion's Roar Magazine, different ones. And um, uh, so I was kind of becoming well-known as this Buddhist prisoner a little bit. And And there wasn't a lot of well-organized Buddhist prison ministry back then. It was just a little, not much. Um, and so but prisoners were reaching out to meditation centers and buddhist sanghas around the country you know seeking support for their interest and so quite a few places started sending the letters to me and then we don't know what to do with this we'll send them to the fleet <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't allowed to correspond with prisoners in other federal prisons but i was i, I got away with doing it with prisoners and state prisons and county jails. Uh, it was kind of a gray area, but I just did it. I didn't hide it because you, you can't hide the mail. You put your mail in the box, you know, and it, I put in a mail address to some state prison, right? Prison number on it, right? Nobody ever stopped me. I just kept doing it. And, uh, you know, I would put together, I'd get a letter from somebody and I worked in the education department. I also was where the copy uh, center was. And, you know, there was a always a, a prisoner that running the copy center and I always knew them. And, So I I could take a magazine, you know, and get an article about meditation copied or something. So I put that together, a little note, and I put it and sent it to somebody. And I I knew they were really going to be happy to get this, right? So it was a very kind of joyful thing to be able to do and serve. But I very quickly realized this was much bigger than something I could do from my prison cell. And so I managed to recruit some help on the outside. And... um, raised a little money from family and friends. And, and I really, initially I just had somebody the outside It was like a mail drop for me. I would, they would mail me all the paperwork I needed to start a nonprofit. I would figure, fill it all out, send it back to them. They would mail it, you know, to the IRS back and forth like that. So managed to establish a nonprofit and then, you know, raise a little money and then uh, started recruiting friends and people on the outside to be prison pen pals with people and, and also to donate, books to to send for free to prisoners on meditation and dharma things like that. So we got that started back in 1989 and uh today it's a very large organization with three divisions um and uh, um, we still do the work with uh supporting uh at risk incarcerated and returning youth and adults and uh we we do it ourselves and we train other people to do it. We have a curriculum called Path of Freedom which is all over the world and uh, um is reaching now it's reaching through secure tablets that are becoming a big part of prisoner education uh it's it's reaching you know it's already reached something like 60,000 prisoners through that and pretty soon it's going to be available to over a million prisoners and uh but you know our in-person we train people to do in-person programming which kind of all went on hold during the pandemic but it's starting to happen again so we you know we had path freedom programs in something like 37 states and 10 countries something like that and um, and uh, and then, you know, we've had post-release programs and both working with people coming out of jail and prison, but also out of homelessness and so forth. Uh, then we have um, another division called Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, and that's where we train correctional officers, probation and parole officers, and uh, other first responders, police, um, work with the U.S. Border Patrol. We've worked with lots of sheriff's departments, lots of different state departments of corrections. We do a lot of work in Canada. And uh, and uh, and then we have another division where we train mindfulness teachers. We train mindfulness teachers who are gonna, you know, we would call it the Engaged Mindfulness Institute. And in our niche is kind of training mindfulness teachers who are gonna work with in areas where there is a lot of trauma and a lot of suffering, a lot of marginalization. So not just prison work, but could be homelessness, could be could be lots of different things. Um, but we train them in. Um, you know, trauma-informed, neuroscientific-informed approaches to teaching mindfulness. So so all that happens under that nonprofit, and that's still uh, a big part of my life. We have our whole staff, and we have an executive director, but I'm still a president, chair of the board, and and uh, very involved. I mean, I do a lot of teaching uh, through the organization. I travel and work with correctional officers and probation and parole officers and, and, uh, and like that. So that's still a big part of my life, as well as I have all the other work I do through Mind Institute. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, this is wonderful to hear about all of this. And I have a number of other questions for you to dig into your practice and how you define some things to help uh, me and our listeners um, know more about your practice. And so I love to hear I'd love to hear how you define mindfulness. Yeah, that's an
1: interesting question. An ongoing dialogue about that with my uh, colleague and our executive director at Prison Mindfulness Institute, Vita Pyers, um, a doctor Vita Pyers. She just got her PhD, did her dissertation on um, on uh, the uh, uh, kind of the the, the Vipassana Polycanon approach to mindfulness as a as a means for uh, prevent, preventing and resolving conflict. Really brilliant work that she did. And um, so we had a, a conversation about what is mindfulness. And I, I, I actually recently interviewed uh, the, the cognitive science Buddhist psychologist and philosopher John Berbeke, um for one of my summits. And uh, we were talking about that a little bit. And so um, the, 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 the definition everybody cites all the time is the famous John Kabat-Zinn definition of mindfulness, right? Paying attention on purpose in a particular way and non-jud- uh, non-judgmentally. Um, and Brevenky doesn't like that definition so much. I, I don't have a big a problem with it. I, I've spread it myself. I've used it a lot. Um, uh, and it's not like uh, Brevenky thinks John's done amazing work, as, as he has, but it's just it's a, it's a bit limited, the definition. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it focuses on the attention part, for one thing. Now, now of course, John Kabat-Zinn has also promoted these nine attitudinal qualities of mindfulness, which is a really important part. Um, in some ways, there's another model that's in the literature uh, talking about mindfulness as a three-legged stool, which I've used a lot as well, where one leg uh, is attention training. You're definitely training your attention and developing your capacity to, to switch attention, to self-direct attention, stabilize attention. Um, but another leg of the stool is intention. So what's your intentionality? So having a a benevolent intention, right, around becoming mindful to awaken, to become more compassionate, to become more altruistic, to serve, as opposed to training your attention to, well, the classic example people use is to be a sniper, for example, right? You know, um, they use breath work, they train their attention, right? And, you know, unfortunately, we live in a world where maybe snipers are still necessary, but we live in a dangerous world. But um, at any rate... um, uh so intention having a benevolent intention and then and then the third leg are these attitudinal qualities things like openness curiosity beginner's mind uh, non-judgment uh, self-compassion self-acceptance uh, gratitude generosity you know all, all these qualities so you're infusing that attention with these with these qualities right the, that attention you're infusing the so but I, but more broadly, I would say that, you know, first of all, mindfulness has become has really kind of become the catch-all term, right, for the modern mindfulness movement, right. But it's really mindfulness and awareness, right? It's mindfulness and awareness training, and mindfulness is tends to be it's not exclusively so, but it's a little the mindfulness aspect of mindfulness and awareness training is a little more focused on the attention training, the concentration, the one point of focus. Not completely, but... And then awareness is more a little broader, more panoramic. But they're both included under the rubric mindfulness, as the words used today in the secular mainstream mindfulness movement. And, you know, it it draws... Buddhism is not the only source for mindfulness training. All all the great traditions and shamanic traditions, human beings have been figuring out how to... You know the benefits of being present and being awake for a long time across all different traditions but the kind of classic techniques that are used in a modern mindfulness movement mostly do come from the the and and most of them come from more from the uh theravadan pali kind of vipassana what is often called vipassana um, um but actually zen meditation is not that different and you know in the tibetan tradition, we talk about shamatha and vipassana and um, and really, that's more. So sort of con- that is the mindfulness and awareness. It's the concentration and the insight. Uh, it's or sometimes called tranquility insight. And so um, so broadly speaking, mindfulness is a practice for working with our mind and bringing forth our best innate qualities working with our mind, working with our body, heart, and mind, working with the whole thing and bringing forth um, our our ideal inequalities of compassion, altruism, generosity, kindness, gentleness, non-aggression, and so forth. And and it is also about being more present, about being awake, being, being fully present. And um, and so, um, you know, it really incorpor- incorporates a lot. And there's a lot of subtlety to it. And you know, in different traditions, um, you know the 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 various meditation practices and the ways of working with your mind and discovering the subtleties of of our conditioning and and how how our world is obscured by the filters of our conditioning and by conceptuality. I mean, it's a very, very, very deep path that has a lot of dimensionality to it, right and And, you know, probably, you know, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition may have taken it as deep as anyone, um, you know, um, And but, but there are many, many different traditions of working, of working with it. So it, it's really a broad subject, and it often gets kind of reduced down to one simple thing, which it's not. Um, but I would say it is about learning to really be awake and be present in the midst of our lives instead of just walking through our lives dre- daydreaming or in a very reactionary kind of robot-like way with our conditioning. So it's about being awake and and it's about bringing forth our best qualities and and sort of dissolving the obstacles to those qualities and and developing over time a, a life where we're more connected with our own innate goodness, the innate goodness of others, that we've actually dropped beneath all the noise into that depth of our being where we realize actually we're not broken, we don't need fixing. There is a part of our being that's never been touched by any of the trauma it's whole. It's pure. It's completely good. And even just having a little toehold down there can change everything. And then we also realize that that everybody has that, no matter how they're behaving currently or how problematic they may be, that the ground of their being is also basic goodness. And and whatever untoward behaviors are happening is coming out of their own suffering, out of their own conditioning. But you know, the life is good. The the underlying you know quality of life itself is innate goodness, innate wholeness. And and so it's really about finding ways to be in touch with that so one can live one's life with less fear and more confidence. You know, when you think about what do the vast majority of human beings do every day, every morning, all all over the planet? You know, they get up, they do the best to take care of themselves, take care of their kids. We're amazingly cooperative. We queue up at the well, at the store. We drive on the right side of the road. You know we're amazingly cooperative and collaborative and so forth, except when fear sets in. Now, if fear sets in around being able to get our basic needs met, you know, the, the higher degree of fear, we can we can get involved in some pretty untoward behaviors. But so, if we really want a more benevolent world, we just need to remove more of the fear. So another way I think of looking at mindfulness is is getting in touch with life, with our own being, and the way our being is completely interdependent with and and Completely connected with life and reality, the more one is in touch with that, the the more the fear goes away, uh, and uh, and one is able to live one's life with a lot of ease and grace and gentleness and compassion and altruism and so forth. So, so I think mindfulness is, includes all the ways in which we do that.
0: I love that. I I will say, as I was listening to your book, what struck me was this concept of. Innate goodness, and I thought, wow, because I feel like most of my life—and maybe it's a cultural thing—I uh, feel like most of my life it was, um, it, it has been spent trying to instill this this thought that that I wasn't good or enough or or all the things. And I thought, what a what a beautiful freedom, and what um, a radical way to look at ourselves and other people to honor their innate goodness and if that came first before anything else i just wonder how much different how, how much different the world would be and how much differently we would act as individuals just that yeah, one absolutely. thing
1: unfortunately <laughs> you know if you if you look historically and cross culturally the view of innate goodness is actually the dominant view you know there's three basic views of human nature if you look historically and cross culturally there's uh there's the blank slate view which we, we come into life just as a blank slate and we're we're just influenced by what we're influenced for for good or bad there's the view of innate goodness that we are innately good and then there's the view of of, of some kind of innate badness of the fallen nature of humanity and uh and really the dominant view has been that of innate goodness so you wouldn't know it living in the west because you know <laughs> unfortunately and you know I'm a lover of all the great spiritual traditions and and I think it, this was an unfortunate twist on Christianity, but the development of, especially in Calvinist Protestantism, this idea of the fallen nature of humanity, the depraved nature of humanity, uh, even, even the original sin notion from the Catholic tradition is problematic. It's not quite as bad as that one, if you really study and understand what it's about. I mean, if you really understood original sin properly, I would say in Buddhism, it's, it's how we, we talk about our conditioning and the ego it's it's the challenge we have the problem is they call it original that's that's where they made a mistake because it's not original goodness is original which is why matthew fox the the dominican priest who was excommunicated and now he's an anglican priest wrote the book original blessing kind of as as to contrast it with that teaching of of original uh sin. but you know again i think these are misconceptions um uh, mis, uh, mis, mis- misfortunate twist on the original teachings of uh of jesus and and um so but as a result of that our west has really got a strong threat of this and a really a lot of shame and blame in the culture and you know if we really think you know basically the under in our culture there's this really strong threat of that and it's basically the idea that absent some threat uh some coercive threat of Ostracization, shaming, imprisonment, whatever punishment. Absent that, human beings won't behave well. That they require that threat to behave well. So, in other words, we have this kind of seed of evil in us, and absent of some course of threat, we won't behave well. And uh, and so, if if that's the belief, what kind of society you create? What kind of institutions you create? That's why we have the prison to school pipeline that that many talk about today. Our schools are set up based around that same thing. They're you know and. And so we have a culture that's kind of, you know, there's punishment, reward, carrot and stick, you know, and a lot of shaming and blaming. And um, and and it's unfortunate because, um, you know, even if you take X, actually in the, that first chapter in Radical Responsibility, I originally had a, a longer version of that chapter. Like when you write a book, you always have to, you work with the editor, you have to shrink things a lot. <laughs> But in that longer version, I did these thought experiments. So, whether you, whether which, whichever view you believe or want to, you know, let's just do a thought experiment. Let's say take on the view of, of, uh, you know, that human nature is somehow inherently bad or evil. And unless you coerce people, they're going to, they're dangerous. Or, and, you know, now just live your, you know, it's extrapolate your life living with that view and, and what kind of society we're going to have with that view. And then take the blank slate, and I, I went through the same, and then take the view of innate goodness. Which world do you want to live in? Regardless of which one you can say is ultimately true, I mean, based on what you believe, that's kind of the world you're going to create, right? I happen to believe innate basic goodness is ultimately true, but even if it was just a view, you're going to create a very different world with that view than you are with the view of innate badness, right? So um, so anyway, I think it, it, it underlies everything I do. It's It's the core principle and teaching within all, all the work I do. When I go into prisons, if, if, if prisoners get nothing else from me, I want them to not just get me speaking it, but I want them to feel from my presence and who I am and the way I'm being with them. I want them to connect with their own innate goodness.
0: I love that. You know, my husband, my husband, I'm sorry, my father actually passed away a couple weeks into the pandemic. And I, I already heard I- that. Thank you. Um, he was a wonderful man, very generous, um, one of the kindest hearts I've ever met, and um, I gave a eulogy, so as we were at the graveyard, which it was two weeks into the pandemic, you know, we're all, everybody's wearing masks, we're all spread out, I mean, it looks like post-apocalyptic, right? You know, we're, we're spread out many feet from each other, and, and I'm, I'm giving this speech, and um, I shared lessons from his life, and actually that was really similar to one of them that I shared, which was that, that he taught me that um, as you see and treat someone, that's how they'll show up. It's kind of um, a visualization of seeing their best selves. Like if you believe in the best version of someone and you treat them that they're that person, that's who they are. And I think it's a beautiful concept. So thank you for sharing that as part of your your life mission. It's very, very lovely. Um, you talked earlier about um, having a, a routine while you were in prison that was, you know, two to three hours of practicing and, and reading and whatnot. I'm wondering about now... That you have a, a lot of institutions that you've founded and, and you have um, a wonderful, beautiful wife and um, just so much going on. You have a consulting business and the list could go on and on and on. You have a lot going on in your life, Fleet. It, and you don't need to me to tell you that. You know that. Um, what's your routine look like? Can you give us a glimpse into how Fleet Mall stays mindful on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm a big believer in the power of uh, a morning routine. Uh, sometimes I call it a ceremony, sometimes a ritual. And, uh, you know, like Tony Robbins talks about having your hour power, or, or lots of different people talk about that in, in the kind of performance sense. And um, so, um, so the first two hours of my day is totally focused on self-care and spiritual practice, but sometimes more like two and a half hours. Um, you know, so I get up and I do a lot of stretching before I even got out of bed. And uh, the stretching I do, um, uh, I I also synchronize it with breath work. So I'm doing deep breath work and stretching kind of this yoga work. And, and then I, uh, then I swing my legs over the side of the bed and I do more breath work and I get up, make my bed. Then I get on the floor and do more yoga, more breath work. Uh, and, uh, when I've completed that whole routine, uh, then I go in and do the bathroom thing, my shower and everything thing and and then i meet uh, my wife sophie in our meditation room we have a room upstairs set aside for meditation with our buddhist shrine and so forth and I go in there and, and we do about an hour anywhere from an hour to an hour and 15 minutes of practice uh sometimes a little longer sometimes a little shorter but pretty consistently at least an hour an hour and 15 minutes Uh, And we do a lot of different types of meditation practice. There's always some basic sitting, mindfulness and awareness sitting practice, but we do a lot of liturgical practices and visualization practices. We both practice in a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. You know, we've both been, Sophie's been practicing for over three decades and I've been practicing for over five decades in that tradition. So we both do a lot of the inner yogic practices. Um, And so we're always doing different practices. And then... uh, I um, make a real, have, you know, developed a real strong conscious intent to practice. Uh, well, you know, then we finish that practice, we come downstairs and we have a really, uh, we used to have a really nutritional breakfast together. Now she has a very nutritional breakfast, and I'm now in the intermittent fasting, so I don't have my breakfast till around 11 a.m. or noon. Um, so that's gotten our breakfast a I think, uh, but sometimes I'll just sit down while she's having breakfast. Um, but anyway, we create a solid foundation for our day, and then I've created real strong intentionality around practicing presence during the day, and also doing a lot of breath work. So I'm always doing breath work, and uh, as I'm working, um, and uh, you know, I have a lot of thought that we have a two-story house, so anytime I'm going up and down the steps, I've trained myself to just really slow down and really be present. Uh, you know, we get out. We have a dog, so we get out and walk the dog, play with the dog, do things. So really concept about bringing presents all these things different activities I'm the I'm the main dishwasher in our house so when I when I'm washing dishes I do that at a sink because the window looks out at the Connecticut River so I really enjoy just slow down appreciate you know connecting with the elements the water the suds wash this get this so I, I've really focused on you know I learned because early on in my life you know I was really working and trying to practice and 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 I often felt that okay I had my practice and you know whatever would happen then uh and then when I got off the cushion and went back into my life, it was just kind of off to the races, you know my it didn't seem like the two were connecting very much.
0: I understand that
1: <laughs> and uh, um, and I realized at some point it takes a lot of intentionality. I mean, if you're practicing regularly, it is going to infuse your life in some ways, but it can infuse your life a lot more directly if you bring a lot of intentionality to that. You know of really taking your life as mindfulness practice so you're doing mindful driving mindful walking mindful evening you know and using your life uh to to awaken and really working with embodiment as well that's been a really big part of my work for the last 20 almost 30 years of of embodiment and body work and really learning to live in the body fully connected to the body and developing much greater interoceptive awareness of the internal sensory landscape of the body which really grounds us right and uh it also helps us the more interoceptive awareness we have it also enhances our ability to connect with others and to connect with the world around us so we're just more more connected right so i, I really work at making that happen and uh, you know and, and create transitions in my day and doing a lot of best work so i am able to work really hard and do a lot and be pretty busy but also uh maintain a lot of equanimity and spaciousness and uh you know, and then, you know, I also have an evening routine that I do of slowing things down and letting go of things. And, uh, you know, can I spend some time with my wife and I try to get eight hours of sleep every night and rest well. And, I, you know, I have these wearables to check on, you know, the quality of my sleep. And, you know, I'm really trying to perform at a high level um, and using, you know, both the, the ancient wisdom and contemplative practices and current technologies to to uh, perform at my best.
0: Excellent. Excellent. You have written this book, Radical Responsibility. Uh, you also have a podcast, Radical Responsibility Podcast. Tell me about why responsibility, why radical responsibility, and why is it so pivotal to who you are and, and your mission?
1: Well, this, this philosophy for me was really birthed in prison. Um you know, when I got that environment, I think, as I mentioned before, I realized it was an incredibly negative environment. And, um, you know, most prisoners, most of my fellow prisoners are walking around with a big victim story. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, people tend to think, you know, they are the victimizers, the perpetrators, right? But, you know, all, all prisoners feel victimized. And actually, most of them have been, most of them have horrific childhoods. Their people are programmed to end up in prison, which doesn't absolve them of responsibility for their actions. But still, when you learn about most people that end up in prison it's very and most of them had even much worse situations than i had much worse and and uh and then they you know they feel over prosecuted and they, they they feel their lawyer did them wrong or their fall partners did them wrong and they all you know and kind of the ritual when you'd meet somebody in in prison you know there's a big yard fortunately where i was they had a big yard and they have softball field out there but a big walking track you can walk all the So you'd go out there and you'd walk a few laps and you'd talk and they'd share their victim story. You share your victim story. But after I did that a few times, I was like done with that ritual. I I didn't want to hear my own at all. And I really didn't want to hear theirs, which wasn't very compassionate, but you know, it's just not where I wanted to live. And I also, I, and I realized that, you know, if I didn't proactively do otherwise, you know, I could come out of prison, you know, pretty embittered and broke. I didn't want to end up that way. And, and also you know just all that negativity and you know having a chip on your shoulder and you know it's hard to describe how negative the prison environment is and i didn't want to come out of prison that way if i was lucky enough to survive but i didn't want to live that way there so i knew i had to take charge of managing myself to to not have that happen but i also realized that um you know in in terms of thinking of my own victim story you know um I didn't want to dwell there. I, I, you know, I ended up, I did a lot of people's time because I, I refused to cooperate um, with the authorities, not because I was trying to be some hard guy or stand up guy. It was just uh, my values, you know, but somebody else is going to go to prison instead of me. Somebody else's family is going to suffer instead of me. You know, it just didn't never, I was never going to do that. And, but lots of people did. And, uh, and of course the, you know, the, the, the government comes in and they threaten, they are going to take your children away, they're going to do this, they're going to, they scare the hell out of people, right? So it's understandable that people do. And so, you know, um, because I didn't cooperate, that's why I got, became the designated kingpin and got this no parole sentence, you know, and, uh, you know, there were probably 50 people that cooperated and testified, and most of whom i never met before. Um, um but uh, they knew people, knew people, knew people, I guess, you know, some of these networks of, you know. And so, you know, I did a lot of people's time, including some people that had previously ostensibly been quite close to me. <laughs> so I could I could have really focused on my anger around that. And also the government, when they prosecute you, they don't play by their, the rules. They break all the laws. They break all their own rules. They play hardball. And, you know, so I could have focused on all that. And, and I said, that's not going to get me anywhere. I knew that right away. Fortunately, I'd had enough... You know, Buddhist training and of psychological training. So that's not going to get me anywhere. The only the only way I'm going to get through this and be able to do anything with my life, again, to leave my son a better legacy than just his dad went to prison or died in prison, is I got to embrace like 200% responsibility for having got myself into this, and and what I'm going to do with. Now I did remember my way there, so it wasn't hard to find things that I. It wasn't hard to find things to own, but I chose to just forget about all the rest of it and just focus on owning you know, how I had created this situation and how I was going to create something different. And as a result, and I really just right right away early on bought into that in a radical way. And, uh, you know, and I'd also realized that even in terms of my Buddhist practice, you know, I had been like many people of my generation in the, you know, in the early days of Western Buddhism, I was mostly interested in the mind, the awareness practices, the meditative experiences. I was really giving short shrift to the to the ethical foundations of of buddhism the precept practices and obviously i couldn't have been smuggling drugs and you know if i'd been following that so that became a real focus for me i want my my life in prison was going to be completely grounded in the precepts of non-harming and non- stealing and online no misuse of intoxicants and, and sexuality and all that i, I just you know and, and then i took more i became a monk and i took i took the novice precepts which is even more and i just really focused them. and I also really got it became really clear to me that there's no free lunches in life you know and that karma is real and so you know if i came up to a vending machine and it was a quarter and i left it there i don't want the karma You know, I'm suffering a lot. I don't know when I created this karma that I'm going through right now, but okay, enough. I'm not, (laughs) I I got the message. I don't want to create any more, you know. So I was just real clear about all these things. And a result of that philosophy of radical ownership, which has nothing to do with self-blame. It's obviously not about blaming others, but it has nothing to do with blaming oneself, and it has nothing to do with blaming victims. It's just about owning your choices, living at choice. And as a result of that, I was able to do things you're not supposed to be able to do when you're in your prison. I was able to start two national organizations and create all kinds of programs in that prison and that, you know, had a lasting impact and effect and benefit a lot of people. I don't say that to pat myself on the back. I just say that to, you know, um, say what can come out of that approach. You know, I didn't demonize the staff or the guards or anything. I just saw them all as human beings. And and, you know, the way I got things done, I didn't fight. I just I just showed up consistently Maybe persistently, but consistently, and and respectfully, and I just kept showing, and sooner or later was able to, you know, push the right buttons so that people said, well, maybe that is a good idea. Maybe we could try that. Let's do that, you know, and and was able to accomplish a lot of things there. But it was it was from this approach of really honoring my basic Buddhist training and values, but this approach of radical responsibility, which uh, sometimes the way I describe that is voluntarily embracing one hundred percent ownership for each and every circumstance we face in life and when we look at the circumstances we're, we're facing in life with with a, a, a at least a modest amount of self-honesty we can see we had something to do with quite a few of them right we either you know we either created it whole cloth or we at least co-created it or or we allowed it by not paying attention or not doing our due diligence or not having good boundaries or we just stumbled into it or or, you know, there was something in it for us where we people pleasing or, you know, enabling or there's all kinds of ways in which we're participating and co-creating the circumstances we face in life. And we don't look at all that for the purpose of blaming ourselves. Not at all. We look at it for the purpose of learning, because if I can see how I got into a situation I don't like, then I've learned something. I can do something different anytime or even the situations I do like rather than just thinking that's, you know, serendipitous. No, it's all causation. So, you know, I can learn to self-regulate in a way that i'm creating the causes of happiness for myself others, instead of creating the causes of suffering for myself and others so it's all about learning and and then there. are of course it's very important while you're doing that because we're all prone to self-blame right and it's in a culture so that's why the importance of really cultivating this developing this you know confidence in our own innate goodness through practice but also really practicing self-compassion and Befriending ourselves, becoming our own best friends. Really important to do that in order to be able to embrace this level of radical ownership without it getting twisted into self blame. And then there's going to be circumstances that, you know, no matter how radically honest we get, we just don't see we had anything to do with it. And everyone would agree, unless that has to do with past lives and who knows about such things, right? We don't see we had anything to do with it. And, but there it is. And, and we may need to, you know, and horrible things happen to human beings. I'm not saying people aren't victimized. And so, it it you know we may need to receive a lot of validation, a lot of support. We may even need to seek justice, but doing that from an empowered position, a place of owning our choices, as opposed to getting locked into that victim mindset, is very different. And so we even the situ- even the situations that we can't see we had anything to do with, we still own those. Why? Because what we're going to own is not that we caused it. You know, and there's some horrible things that happen to us. Even if I see I had some small ploy, that doesn't justify that it happened. It's horrible. It shouldn't happen to anybody. But still, I can learn something there. I can learn how to maybe avoid it in the future. But even if I don't see any connection, then at some point, the most salient question is, okay, it's in my life. Maybe it shouldn't be in my life. It shouldn't be anybody's life. Maybe it's completely unjust and criminal and horrible. and shouldn't be there, but it is. So what am I going to do with it? At some point, that's the salient question. What am I going to do? Am I going to let it take me down? or am I going to find the most creative way I can respond to move my life forward? And, uh, and so that, you know, it's about really living at choice and it's not that we're not going to find ourselves, you know, feeling, you know, all the feelings. and It's not about repressing anything, but it's just saying, okay, yeah, that's all there. I'm going to give myself compassion around this. I'm going to realize this is really hard and I'm going to shift my focus to what can I do? What can I do to move my own life forward? You know, with a long-term, you know, enlightened self-interest, which is, more long-term which usually works out to be in everybody else's interest as well when you have that kind of long enlightened self-interest is really long-term interest right i mean in shorthand when you're pissed at somebody it might feel good to hit them but you know that's going to lead to all kinds of problems you probably don't want to have right so yeah. the long enlightened self-interest long-term interest is usually in everybody's interest and so you know it's that is living from that question what can i do you know, we call that the magical, radical responsibility question. No matter what situation I'm in, how horrible it is, and I find myself, I'm convicting and feeling hopeless and powerless, and it's horrible, and and then I say, okay, take a breath. Okay, I don't like this. This sucks. What can I do? Immediately, I'm back in the mind of possibility. There's always a million things we can do. There's a million different things, ways we can approach any given situation. So it's about living from living from choice. It's about how we learn as much as we can from our life experience, and how do we spend as much of our time in an empowered place of choice and less of our time in that victim mindset, which doesn't mean we're ignoring our feelings or not being compassionate to ourselves and others at all.
0: Sure, sure. And it seems like you've kind of answered this question that I had as a follow-up, kind of this when folks are up against a wall, when, when maybe they're looking at a life sentence or maybe something in their in their lives is coming to a head and they realize maybe they have caused some some deep hurt maybe they are in a position where it feels like there's no way out it sounds like your answer is radical responsibility you know yeah Take the bull by the horns. Admit where where yeah, you come they, into play, and, and where where life is have just life. Working
1: on self, working on self forgiveness, working on working on forgiving others, working on learning to self regulate, developing a mindfulness practice so you can actually recognize your choices instead of just being driven along by your childhood conditioning all the time. But actually, you know, learning to recognize our moments of choice, and you know, we we got to do the work. You know, if we want a different life, we got to we got to do the work. When I go into prisons, I want the in and everybody in i mean they're they're all my brothers and sisters because i spent enough time there, became part of my life part of my world and it breaks my heart that any human being has to be locked up uh and you know there are human beings doing things for which i would agree they should be locked up at least temporarily um um until they can make some shift and maybe there are some people that have to stay locked up forever because they you know they got so damaged that they're just not able to turn it around in this lifetime but we can still treat them with dignity But when I go into prisons, I want the prisoners I work with, talk to, interact with, teach meditation. to. I want them to get um, two things, uh, two principal things anyway. I, I want them to get that I get that, you know, for the vast majority of them, you know, they've been victimized terribly in their lives. And many of them come from incredibly painful backgrounds, full of trauma. And I get that they, in most cases, they've been over prosecuted. And I get that our that our criminal justice system is incredibly racist, whether by design or default, but the impact of, you know, of the way people of color are arrested, prosecuted, the sentencing, the whole thing all the way through is incredibly biased and and um, uh, incredibly unjust. So I want them to get that. I get all that. And they do, because that's who I am. And they they get that. And I also want them to get that regardless of all that and and i feel and i want them to get that i feel tremendous empathy and compassion and it breaks my heart to see them in the situation they're in and i get how they got there and i and i really and it's and i don't it's not their fault most of them were programmed to get where they got um and i want them to get that their future their destiny what's going to happen tomorrow the next day and any possibility they have of getting out and having a different life has to do with one and one only thing and that's the choices they're making right now, today, and tomorrow, and the next day— their choices, their actions, their behaviors—that's what's going to determine their future. Nothing else. And you know, if they if they're full of anger about the injustice, okay, well, get your act together and get out of prison, and go out and change the world. But to do that, you're going to have to train yourself. You're going to have to train yourself. You know. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's that's what I want them to get. I want them to feel that empathy and compassion. And I also want them to get this ma- this message of Radical uh, responsibility, which you could also easily just just as easily call radical empowerment. It's radical self empowerment.
0: That's the word that kept coming to me as you were. Because talking. We can't
1: control other people. Right. You know, I may determine even if I'm willing to okay, I I own thirty percent of the responsibility for this, but by golly, it's seventy percent their responsibility. Well, if I really believe that and I'm unhappy about the situation, well, I just gave my power away because I can't control them. I don't get to be happy or change until they change, right? The only place we have any real influence and real power is with ourselves. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't be trying to change the world, make it a better world, of course. And my work is a lot about that. But but we can't do it from the place of thinking we can control the world or control others. Obviously, we, we cannot. Um, but the one thing we have a lot of influence over is this. And the more we live our lives from that place of radical responsibility, then the more we are going to be a positive influence on others. And maybe we can influence some others to uh, to move in directions that would be better for them and for the world and everyone else. So, uh, but it starts with that for me, anyway. It starts with a, a combination. I, I would say three core components. Somehow, at least entertaining the possibility that we have innate goodness, and then using contemplative practices to to experientially discover that, to developing a foundation of tremendous self-compassion and self-friendship. And then three, embracing this idea of living in choice, this idea of radical ownership.
0: Amazing. I'm wondering if I recall from another interview of yours that I watched, you had talked about I believe it was your, your master had kept in touch with you and was kind of your mentor while you're in prison. Is that true? You you had that infrastructure. You weren't you you didn't have to go to no, law
1: just early on um i went in in 85 he died in 87 oh Um, my gosh so yeah so you know um he counseled me before i went and we had a couple phone calls while i was in but he died in 1987 but there were many people in in um in my core community which was uh the the symbolic community um uh who were very supportive to me through correspondence some came to visit not like i was you know i was in springfield missouri and it was like that's a very isolated <laughs> it's one of the buckles of the bible bell it's not a big area for for buddhism and meditation um and uh but you know periodically i would get a visit uh but a lot i corresponded with a lot of people pema chodron was a regular correspondent to mine because you shared uh, a master with right my,
0: with my, it, huh? didn't didn't you share a master with pema i was thinking that was the same person share what a, a master the um Rinpo we had the same, teacher, sh- yeah. R- had the yes. same
1: teacher yeah we had the same teacher yeah yeah no i knew pema i knew pema i'd known her for a long time yeah. uh we're she's a dharma sister we i'd known her i've known her since the the mid-70s yeah. um and and anyway I, I, I um yeah, she was. We corresponded regularly, and I corresponded with a lot of people. And then somehow, it just by nature of being in prison, I ended up getting in touch with lots of different spiritual communities, and I, I had a lot of spiritual friends and mentors. Yeah,
0: yeah, oh, wonderful. I think Pema and, might and later have been...
1: on. Later on, my my teacher's son, who became the head of our lineage, came in uh, to visit me and did a oh. uh, number of empowerments and pra- gave practices to me. And also, another lineage holder in our tradition had, had come in and, and done. Things for me, and then actually, after my teacher died, so I could continue my practice, one of the uh, high lamas of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, a Trong room. she came and did a series of empowerments for me. So, people were very generous. And then later on, as I began studying Zen in parallel with my Tibetan path, my Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman, visited quite a few times. Um, so yeah,
0: well, that's amazing. I, I think that the work of Pema, some of her books were some of the first uh, mindfulness books that I ever. Uh, was exposed to and i really appreciate it it was she was a good stepping stone um from my um my background and i appreciated her candor um i didn't feel like she was in some ivory tower i felt like she was just another person who was trying to help make the world a better place and i i appreciate yeah, her Yeah she's spirit. very
1: accessible so she has this kind of way of this kind of kitchen sink level of communicating <laughs> the dharma right yeah she does very quite relatable a,
0: quite a gem I'm wondering if you would lead us in one of your favorite mindfulness practices, um, as the the mission of the Mindfulness Academy podcast here is to inspire our listeners by the amazing work that our guests are doing, which we're we are we are on track with that fleet, just in case you're wondering. And the second part is to equip our listeners with at least one mindfulness practice when they leave, because I see mindfulness—you got a tool belt, right? And I just want to keep filling the tool belt because different tools help us in different scenarios, as you well know. So I'll give you the floor.
1: Great. Well, I'm going to do something fairly brief, you know, just three to five minutes here probably. Um, And uh, so I'll, I'll invite your audience to find their way into a posture that for for. Each of you feels relatively uplifted, upright. I mean, if you need to do this lying down, standing up, leaning against the back of a chair for whatever reasons of physical limitation, please do whatever works for you. But if you are able to sit up relatively, in you know, a relatively up with the way that feels kind of naturally awake and dignified, but at the same time relaxed and stable. And then for this practice, practice can there's lots of different techniques can be done with the eyes open, uh, gaze raised, gaze lowered, gaze eyes closed. Uh for this, I'd invite you to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so, and if not lower your gaze, maybe looking down the bridge of the nose. But if you're comfortable, I would encourage you to close your eyes because we're going to work with cultivating a uh an embodied approach to the practice here. So, having established your posture, I invite you to begin gently just bringing your attention to the body, and when I say body um I'm really talking about the actual landscape of tactile physical sensation, because body is just a word, a concept. And, And we actually do have a conceptual body made up of our thoughts about the body, our memories of the body, our images of the body. And our conceptual mind, as amazing as it is, it obscures the experience of direct reality. So the invitation is here to try to tune in on some of the actual sensations, like perhaps feeling the pressure points where your body meets the chair or the cushion, where your feet meet the ground. Perhaps feeling the weight of your clothing, the texture of your clothing, where the contact between your skin and your clothing. Perhaps feeling the passage of air across the nostrils and or parted lips with each in-breath and out-breath. And then just continually extending that awareness, that curiosity all across the landscape of the body from head to toe, the external landscape to begin with, the surface of the skin, which is one vast sensory organ. And just feeling ourselves enveloped in this field of sensate experience, which is the the contact between our body and the space surrounding us, which is actually tangible. It's not just empty space. And the boundary is energetic and fluid on some levels, so, but just feeling that sense of, you know, presence and, you know, being held within this benevolent space and feeling the physical presence of your body, at least the external presence. And if you find your mind wandering off, just gently bringing it back. We don't need to have a conversation with ourselves about that. We just come back. We just come back and drop into deeper and deeper curiosity. Almost a passion of curiosity to really know, like, how deeply can I know myself? How deeply can I experience my own body right now? With what level of clarity, detail, vividness, depth? And then you're invited to begin exploring the internal landscape of the body, the internal landscape the overall weight and mass of the muscles and bones. All the sensations arising and falling away with each in-breath and out-breath, the contraction and relaxation of the diaphragm muscle, the abdominal muscles, the intercostal muscles between the ribs. Feeling that entire sensate flow with each in-breath and out-breath. And as much as possible, feeling it deep within the body really being curious about feeling into the depth of the internal landscape of the body. Our entire body is a living organism. It's all sensory, all containing neuronal cells connected to the central nervous system, even the bones, the white outer hard layer of the bones, the periosteum, the marrow of the bones, all containing neuronal cells, it's all sensory. The same for the musculature, the circulatory system, all our major organs, the glands, it's all sensory. So just feeling into that, and you know, those perhaps subtler sensation within the body, but accessible nonetheless. Finding the heartbeat, the pulse, And just being curious about this internal landscape of the flow of sensate experience and energy within the body, which is awakening our capacity for what's known as introspection a fancy word for internal perception. And we're all very familiar with that because it's how we know when we're hungry or tired, how we know when we need to use the restroom, it's how we experience discomfort and pain. But we generally ignore it unless there is some discomfort there so the invitation here is to really drop into the body and feel into the body as deeply as we can and just being really curious about what's there and being willing to feel discomfort you know we're we're pretty hardwired to chase comfort and avoid discomfort seek pleasure avoid pain and that keeps us living a very unconscious mechanical life so one of the strategies for waking up is to embrace discomfort now we're not punishing ourselves we're not looking for discomfort but it's always present all sensory experience arises across the spectrum from pleasant to neutral to unpleasant. So we could constantly choose to embrace the whole thing. So what am I feeling now? How how deeply can I feel my own body? And again, if we find the mind wandering, you know, we get very dispersed with our attention externally, and so we're just gathering different threads of dispersed attention, and we're bringing them home to the body. And it's really a process of coming home. And being in our own skin, in our own body, with feeling, with depth, with awareness, curiosity, openness. And the more deeply we're able to settle into and feel the body with curiosity and openness, we're also connecting with our emotional body because we experience emotion in the body. So we're connecting with the heart as well. And ultimately, we're connecting with the earth because the body is made of the earth, of the very same substances and minerals. So connecting with the body connects us with our heart and with the earth. And there's this vast landscape of somatic, internal somatic awareness. And it's an endless exploration. And the deeper we go into the body, we're starting with the brain. I'm talking about actual physical sensation, very tangible physical sensation. It helps developing this deeply felt presence of the body. It anchors us in nowness. And the deeper we go into the body, we're getting into the subtle sensation and really even in the subtle mind. Eventually, the whole body-mind spectrum. But the portal is the body. Feeling the body. And initially, we may have a sense that we're kind of watching the body, or we're observing the body, or we're even watching ourselves feel the body. And that's fine. as part of the process. The invitation is to relax into just direct feeling without so much of a need for a feeler, for an ob- a subject, object relationship. We're just, just direct feeling. For example, the breath. I could observe my breath, or I could just feel the breath. Just feel the breath without worrying about the, whether there's somebody doing the feeling, and then eventually I can relax even further and just being the breath, just being the breath, just being the body. And the deeper we go into the body, we'll begin to experience a kind of resonance, a kind of coherence, a kind of flow, and we'll tap into the body, mind, heart systems' ability to auto-regulate into deeper and deeper attention stabilization and deeper and deeper awareness and really dropping into the very depth of our being with pure presence, pure beingness. The body has this capacity and we tap into it just by really gradually settling in and settling in and, and with feeling and curiosity of the entire totality of the body but especially this internal sensory landscape is really the doorway into the depth And whenever you're ready, I invite you to gradually open your eyes and reconnect with the space where you are. And just invite you to consider maybe bringing a little more of this embodied depth into your regular practice and just seeing where that takes you, seeing where it takes your practice. Thank you.
0: Thank you for leading us in that fleet. We will get here towards the end of our interview i have so many more things i'd like to ask but i i know our time is running running short here um i wanted to ask you um when folks come to work with you what is something that they typically say what's the pain they're experiencing
1: well i think um especially in in the area of people who practice meditation, whether they're beginners, the immediate practitioners, or even advanced practitioners, um, we we hear a lot that people discover a, a different dimension of the practice um, that that they find really shifts things for them a lot um, uh, and there's their whole sense of possibility about practice altogether. Um, and uh, you know we can we can work with all the sense perceptions in practice um you know sight sound smell and taste we can have anything can be the object of mindfulness the object of awareness including thoughts thoughts are it's actually a very deep practice to work directly with thought but it's it requires a very stabilized mind already because other thoughts are very sticky you just get caught up you know and then you're down a rabbit hole right but the body itself is very uh, it's the most tangible thing in our experience and so it's a wonderful portal into the very depth of beingness and uh, developing this internal neuro biofeedback loop that is really already there that the body can auto-regulate itself in a profound states of awareness. And so people find that really encouraging and and kind of almost revelatory. Um, and at whatever stage of the practice they're in, um, they it just can, you know, kind of they get excited about their practice again. Oh, right. And uh, to see that the possibilities of that depth that are there, so that, that's a lot of what we hear in terms of the, uh, uh, in terms of the practice. In terms of radical responsibility, we just hear again and again how people find that it's incredibly liberating to make that shift of focus, to really focus one choice. Uh, people find it incredibly liberating and empowering.
0: I like that connection with the rest of our conversation and your life's work. I'm glad to hear that. Well, tell me real quick how people can learn more about you. Where where can people do that?
1: Well, uh, they can go to my website, fleetmall.com. It's a good place to start, and there's my podcast is there, and a lot of information. You can kind of find your way to the other work I do through there. But if people are interested in the prison work, they can go to prisonmindfulness.org or mindfulpublicsafety.org. If they're interested in our mindfulness teacher trainings, they can go to engagemindfulness.org. Uh, and if you're interested in all the online summits we do and all my online courses and, and Neurosomatic Mindfulness, Radical Responsibility, and all that, you can go to HeartMind Institute, which is just heartmind.co, not .com, that's somebody else, but heartmind.co.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show today. From my heart to yours, I hope you live with ease. This is your host, Amy Morgan, signing off.